So let's read uh, 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Thank God for his word. Today, as you know, is the 10th anniversary of 9-11 when the terrorists hijacked passenger planes, flew them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. It's an event which had a massive impact on the, uh, the US, according to the former US Vice President Dick Cheney. 9-11 changed everything. And um, whilst President Obama may say that actually it made the US stronger, in many ways it might have done, I also think... Uh, in many ways, dented their confidence. I think they probably realised for the first time, actually, they were, as a country, vulnerable to a terrorist attack on their own uh, land, their own country. And this week, we've seen high security alerts in New York as they're worried about a repeat attack. Confidence is, in uh, some ways, something we're born with, some, some ways, something we, we acquire, we grow into through events that happen to us in our lives. It's also not something that we can tell very easily by simply by looking at somebody. If you look at somebody standing at the front and uh, speaking confidently, uh, that doesn't actually tell you what is going on inside that person by way of confidence. Often people are putting on a front and underneath are a bag of nerves. Well, the theme of uh, 1 John that we're going to be looking at over the next uh, few weeks in our morning services um, is very much about confidence and certainty. But it's a different type of confidence. It's not a personal confidence. It's not a confidence in a, in a government, in human strength or ability. It's a confidence in Jesus Christ. And the writer of the letter, as John said, is um, believed by most of the Apostle John, a disciple of Jesus. Um, he's writing to this group of churches who, as we will see through this series, are people who are suffering, Christians suffering from a crisis of confidence. And part of that is caused by false teachers who've come and tried to undermine their faith with what they're teaching. And so the purpose of John in writing this letter is, I think, to give them confidence in two particular areas. One is that eternal life is achieved through Jesus Christ in him alone. That's the objective test. 
But secondly, that they themselves can be sure that they have received the gift of this eternal life. The subjective, how do I know that I have been saved? And uh, it's always good when the actual the writer tells you why he's been writing this, so it's good if we just turn a few chapters to the, the end of 1 John, to chapter 5, verse 11. And this is where John sort of spells it out for us. It says in verse 11, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward, isn't it? And then he carries on, though. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's the certainty of Jesus Christ and it's the certainty of eternal life that we will know it. And John is writing here, if we go back to to chapter 1, out of a passion, out of a conviction, because he himself has seen Jesus in person. He knows this person, Jesus Christ. He's heard his teaching, he's witnessed his miracles, he's witnessed his death and resurrection. He's touched God. And the reason that he has to spell this out here is that this is not just another human being he has met. This is God himself who has taken on human flesh. He's met God in person. Not a vision, not a dream, but in real life. And some of that excitement, the passion that comes out here is um, reminiscent of what the disciples said to Thomas after the resurrection. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas needed more convincing, more reassuring. But after he himself had touched Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. When any news event happens in the world, the media are quick to arrive on the scene, as they were at Ireton Court in Tame last week following a double murder. And the first thing they do is look for eyewitnesses. People they can interview, people who saw what actually happened. Because why? Because their reports are more convincing. You're more likely to believe somebody who's telling you from what they've seen themselves than somebody who's just heard it from someone else. So the media knocked on the door of neighbours, including our own Tina Burnham, you may have seen on screens, asking whether she knew the people concerned. But why is John so keen to tell others about what he's seen here? Well, interestingly enough, the reason it says that John is telling them this is not what you might have thought, so that you too can be saved. Look what he says down in verse uh, 3 here of chapter 1. He says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And carrying on in verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. And what, John, what is driving John in writing this letter is the joy of true fellowship. The joy of true fellowship. If you were at a home group last week, I wonder what things you came up with when you were discussing the meaning of fellowship. You know, we often talk about fellowship, don't we, in terms of things that we, we do together. We come together, we, we have food together, we, we read the Bible together, we pray together, we chat together. But fellowship, those are the things we do in many ways when we have fellowship. Because fellowship is about what you have in common with somebody else. It's the, the pleasure of seeing eye to eye with somebody. Of having the same values, the same priorities and beliefs. It's what makes Steve and Christine this morning able to, to make the promises that they have made because they share the same priority for honour. They want to see her become 
a Christian. They will have lots of other goals and ambitions for honour, I'm sure, but none as important as that. And so together they will be praying for that to happen. So Christian fellowship firstly means sharing a belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And the first thing we believe about Jesus is that he is God. The very first words of this letter are that which was from the beginning. And to be there at the beginning means that Jesus wasn't created by somebody else. He is a creator. That means he was with the Father in the beginning. You know, it recalls the opening words of John's Gospel that some of you will, I'm sure, know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the amazing thing about this Jesus who is God is, as it says in verse 2, he appeared. The life appeared. He appeared in flesh to the creatures that he had made in this earth that he'd made. He came down and revealed himself to human beings, what we call the incarnation, God taking on flesh. It's a a positive action that God took for our benefit. We wouldn't have been able to know him and see him if he had not chosen to come and make himself known in this way. That's an amazing thing that many people then and many people now still struggle to believe. People come up with all sorts of other explanations that it was God appearing as a man for a period, but not really being a man. But if you turn over the page to John chapter 4, verse 2, John spells it out here pretty clear. Verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So to be one, to be united, to have fellowship, depends on our relationship with the Father and the Son. And that is why John writes, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. They are both God. And so to have fellowship with the Father and the Son is to to share their values, to believe what they believe, to love what they love, and to want to spend time with them getting to know them, reading the word, wanting to know what their will is for us. It's only if we have fellowship with the Son and the Father that we can have fellowship with each other. And fellowship grows not just by spending time together, having fun together, and that's obviously part of it, of getting to know each other, but it's by deepening our knowledge of the Father and the Son. It's also interesting Why John wants to have fellowship with these Christians? Because he writes, we write this to make our joy complete. Not your joy complete, but our joy complete. And if you are a Christian here, I'm sure you know that there can be no greater joy than seeing somebody come to faith. Seeing them have their eyes opened by God to the gospel and accepting it for themselves. Now, in some ways, it sounds a bit strange to write that here. We write this to make our joy complete. You know, but at the end of the day, John is just being very honest here. You know, and it may be partly because of our own culture where we are constantly on the lookout for people who are trying to um, uh, get one over us, to um, uh, particularly salesmen who are trying to to sell us stuff and uh, get something out of us, um, usually our money. 
Uh, there's no such thing as a, a free gift we've come to learn and accept. And so when we, you know, we try and share our faith and tell people about Christianity, there's always that sense of suspicion. Why is this person trying to um, force his beliefs on me? What is the catch here? Maybe he's on some sort of commission. Maybe he gets paid for the number of converts that he gets or something. There's a scepticism there. But we do need to be honest, you know, when we're talking to people about our faith. The reason I want you to, to know Jesus yourself is because I want you to know what I know, to have the same joy that I have. And that will make my own joy complete, to see you know that, to see you happy and content in Jesus Christ. It's very easy, I find that myself, to fall into the attitude when people show no interest, to think, well, yeah, don't say I didn't tell you. You know, it's up to you if you want to believe or not. It um, doesn't matter to me. But of course it does matter to us, doesn't it? If we think this is so important, then of course it matters to us if people accept it or not. It brings incredible joy to us because we know how important it is. And that joy doesn't just come from seeing somebody come to faith. It also comes from seeing people grow in their faith. Grant said earlier on how, the, how much joy he received from seeing children grow up into teenagers and into people who had their own faith and strengthened in that faith. It's very easy to, to do lots of church things with people, but not to have that deep, pure fellowship where we can come together and come closer to God, which we can do in church, in home groups, in prayer meetings, as we meet up with each other. It's spending time deepening the bond that we already have in Jesus. Well, the driver for John is the joy of true fellowship. But what about the message? What is the message that he gives us in this passage? Have a look at verse 5. This is what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Well, what does mean that God, John mean by God is light? Well, if we read on, there is a clue here. If we look at verse 6, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, so the opposite to light, we lie and do not live by the truth. So what he's saying is if we don't walk in the light, we don't live by truth. So light here must signify truth. And to say that God is light must mean that he is the source of all truth, which fits with Jesus' claim, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth must be what conforms to, to God. But if light was just about truth, why didn't John just say, well, God is truth? Probably because light has other wider connotations, I think, here. Um, I don't know whether you, whether you have to go to the loo in the middle of the night. Sometimes you have to, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know whether you turn the light on. Um, might be able to if you're on your own, but uh, if there's somebody with you, um, you don't want to wake them up. So you stumble in the dark to the toilet. And uh, that's fine when you're, you're at home in this country. I think I've just about worked out the way there now in the dark. But um, on holiday, we uh, came across um, some scorpions. Now, suddenly, a trip to the toilet in the dark takes on a whole different sort of complexity, doesn't it? What are you walking on? What is hiding there in the dark? The light reveals what is hidden in the dark. And to say that God is light is to say that he reveals all the evil, all the bad things that are there. He exposes all the dangers, all the traps, all the lies. 
With God, you have complete openness, complete honesty. There's no hidden agenda with God. You can believe him absolutely. Now, great, you may say, but if that's the case, then why doesn't everybody come into the light? Surely that's what we would all want to do if he is so attractive. Well, let's just turn back to the Gospel of John for a minute, to uh, John chapter to 3. Find that on page 1066 of the Church Bibles. This is what John writes. He writes, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that is the problem, isn't it? People prefer to follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. They don't want to face up to the fact that they are living for themselves. They don't want to think about all the things that they do that are selfish, that are embarrassing, that are shameful, that are displeasing to the one who made them, who is pure. They don't want to step into the light and have those evil thoughts and deeds exposed for what they are. And ever since Adam and Eve tried to, to hide from God out of shame for what they did, man has covered up his evil deeds, his fears, his insecurities and the thoughts of his heart. If you read a newspaper, how much of it is covered up? It's just taken up by news reports of, of cover-ups, of things that uh, the media have revealed because they think it's in our public interest to know. Um, we've had the phone hacking scandal recently, haven't we? Well, recently there's been the, the British intelligence links with Libya. What was going on there, they've been asking. And the death of an Iraqi civilian whilst in the custody of the British army. What happened there? Now, our lives might not be important enough to make it into the press, but I'm sure we all have those secrets that we're probably ashamed of. But the message that God is light is not meant to be a frightening one. He actually wants us to come into the light and enjoy being in the light. Now, why would we want to do that, you might ask? Well, there's a great promise there. Have a look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another. We've looked at what that means already. We share the great joy of being with other Christians, of walking together unashamedly in the light. And that fellowship is only possible because we've been purified from all sin by the blood of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross in our place allowed us to go free. Allowed us to stand as pure and innocent before God. Allowed all that ugly stuff that we have done to be wiped clean. And allowed us to stand tall under the spotlight. And that's great, isn't it? Um, that's wonderful news. And of course, if you are a Christian, though, maybe you're asking yourself, what well, does that include me? Am I amongst those who've had their sins forgiven? And to answer that, we need to understand what it means to walk in the light. And we come on finally to the test of faith. Are you walking in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, I think John explains this firstly by describing those who are not walking in the light. Have a look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So for the truth to be in us, to be walking in the light, first of all means to acknowledge that we are sinful. And the Bible tells us time and time again that we are all by nature sinful. There's no one righteous, Romans says, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is what the world will struggle with, isn't it? The world accepts that there is good and evil, but evil means bin Laden, and you get rid of evil by killing bin Laden. That's what you do. It means Gaddafi, and you get rid of evil by removing Gaddafi. It means the terrorists who kill thousands of people on 9-11. It means the Norwegian guy who killed all those young people on that island. But it doesn't, they will think, mean the average man on the street who, on the whole, is pretty good. He's not perfect, but he's pretty good. But the author Ian Rankin, I think, has summed this up quite well when he said, we prefer to demonise certain people, put evil in a world of monsters, because it prevents us confronting the fact that these people are just like us, the people next door. It lets us off the hook. I think that's true, isn't it? But God has a different measure for good. For him, goodness is perfection. He is perfection. And anything that falls short of perfection needs to be dealt with. And so to walk in the light means that we have to accept that by nature we are imperfect. We continue to sin. We cannot do anything ourselves about that. The only thing we can do is ask for his forgiveness. And as we're forgiven, as we're made pure in his sight, that is where the light shines into our lives. We're considered pure because of Christ. So walking in the light is acknowledging our sinfulness, the impact of our sin on our relationship with God. It's also something more than that. It's, it's wanting to grow in holiness, wanting to grow in holiness. Look at verse 9. Again, a wonderful promise here, which then gives us all assurance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, people have interpreted these words in different ways. Um, the Catholics at one extreme will use this to justify confession as a, as a sacrament and uh, to be sure of your salvation you need to have continually confessed all your sins at all times and, and done your penance which um, may mean saying certain prayers or doing works of mercy um, or doing some form of self-denial um, and all of that somehow makes Christ's sacrifice insufficient as if it needed some sort of human contribution to our salvation and at the other extreme, there are those who believe, well, once you've asked for forgiveness, that's it. You don't need to worry anymore. Just go and living your life and uh, things, are, things are fine. And on one hand, that is true, isn't it? When we've been forgiven, we've been forgiven for all of our sins, past, present and future. But of course, walking in the light is also an ongoing process. Because we want to live by the truth. We want to grow in holiness as a Christian. We want to grow... In maturity, we want the fruit of the Spirit to be more evident in our lives. And ironically, when that is the case, as we do grow, often we become more aware of our sin, even the little sins that previously we were blind to. And that's the process of, of growing in, uh, in holiness, of sanctification. Some of the people who John was warning against here were those who somehow thought they'd made it, who had reached a level of holiness and um, they no longer needed to worry. 
But John says in verse 10, he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Well, let's um, bring these points together as we close. What does this um, fellowship that we've looked at have to do with walking in the light? How do these two things fit together? And uh, notice that uh, John doesn't address the Christians here to whom he's writing as you. He doesn't say, if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself, the truth is not in you. No, it's all if, if we. He's identifying himself with them. He's saying, we're all in this together. Fellowship is what we all long for. And what that fellowship means is together walking in the light. And therefore, if any of us uh, who are Christians will stray, as we will do from time to time, as we start to wander out of the light into the darkness, as we lose our, our passion for Jesus, our love for each other, that uh, Grant was talking about, as those small sins creep into our lives and become bigger, we need to help each other out. And we'll only be able to do that if the fellowship is strong when we are walking in the light. If we are accountable to other Christians if we're together on fire for Jesus, then <clears throat> we will notice a, a, a calling off in somebody's face. We will we'll be able to talk to them about it. But if we haven't got that depth of relationship, then it's quite hard to correct somebody, to rebuke somebody, to bring them back into the light. Because they won't accept it from you. They'll see it as you interfering, as being judgmental towards them, rather than you being concerned for them. So let's not hide away in the dark. Let's be open with one another as we walk together in the light and as we enjoy true fellowship. And if you're someone here this morning who doesn't yet know what it means to have fellowship, then I do pray that God would shine his light into your life, that you will see for yourself that he is light, he is truth, and there's pure joy in coming to faith and trusting in him.